Today from the word we are reading John 3, 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Enon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that what I said. I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, happy Sunday. I'm, I'm Kyle. Uh, I, I get to pastor here, which means um, that all of the negative and positive experiences that you've ever had with a pastor get projected onto me. Um, and there is a, a gift to that um, uh, and um, there's also a curse with that. And so what I just, as like before we, we get going, is um, all the positive stuff I would want to take, but I also just want to say I, I don't. All the negative stuff I will go, <laughs> gladly take. Um, because in the story that so many of us experience with the church is that uh, it, it's a place where hurt persists. And we're hopeful, we have this little line that just encapsulates what we're hopeful to see happen here, and it's practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. Um, but you are a part of that renewal. Like you are the, the person in whom God desires to renew and, to store and restore. And the hope is, is that the church whom Christ has set his affection on, the bride, would be the place where healing, not just hurt, can take place. And so the people in our community who are uh, participating in responsible care, um, like those who are leading groups and those who are sitting to your right and to your left, like we want to be a part of God mediating his healing to you through the church. I, I actually don't think that you can be a follower of Jesus apart from the church. Like solo Christianity is not a thing. We need the pain of the church to bring God's healing. Um, it's often that our deepest wounding takes place in relationship, but our deepest healing also takes place in relationship. And so we're hopeful to facilitate some of that. But, um, but there's a, a little line that kind of encapsulates it and, it, and it's where I want us to start, and it's this. It's these three words, life is difficult. 
So some of you are like, amen, you're, you're preaching my sermon already. Life is difficult. And these are the opening words from the American psychiatrist M. Scott Peck in his book, World Less Traveled. You may not know this book, but it's sold millions of copies. I would give it a, like a high recommendation. Uh, it, but I don't think I have to convince any of you that life is difficult. Whether you're young or old, we experience this. You can, like my boys can attest, life is difficult when we have a boundary and we enforce said boundary. But life can also be difficult when you're a teenager and you're learning to parallel park and you get discounted on your exam because you look over your shoulder too much and don't use your mirrors, hypothetically. I didn't, I didn't realize I was still bitter about that. I was gonna get my money back if I got it perfect. Anyways, that's, life is difficult. It can be benign, the boundaries that your parents enforce, and it can also be as frustrating as a diagnosis that comes in and you didn't want it. Life is difficult. And Christians, we have all sorts of language to help us make sense of the difficulty of life. We have language like spiritual struggle, which is a positive way to talk about deconstruction. We have language from uh, St. John of the Cross of the dark night of the soul. And if you reference the scriptures, you'll see it littered all over the place. You have the language of sin. And maybe you hear a pastor talk about sin and it feels like a little prick in your spirit. So just let's take some wisdom from St. Ignatius. Sin is, is simply this. It's an unwillingness to trust that God, what, what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness, which might sound a little self-helpy, but it's that God actually desires your good and our like, capacity to trust that, St. Ignatius would call that sin. Or you could simply say life is difficult. And practically what this all means is that life, this side of the new creation, it comes with a sort of sin tax this inherent difficulty, and yet so many of us, the church included, we cling to the assumption that life ought to be easy, or, or perhaps how we might say it today is life ought to be comfortable. And I, I love comfort. I'll just be honest with you, it's, it is delightful. I, I am a fan of comfort. I don't think that Jesus is like in the heavens before the Father pleading the case of discomfort for the church. No, actually, he is called the comforter. Like the, the spirit is given to us to bring comfort. So it's not as though it's like you have to be whipping yourself in the name of Jesus, asceticism, or that's not following Jesus. No, like God is wanting, he wants to enter into that. And yet, we have this assumption that life ought to be this way. Well, Peck goes on to round out his observation on difficulty to say this. He says, once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. And that doesn't mean that difficulty like evaporates because we've named it. It's not some sort of like reverse name and claim it kind of a thing like, oh, I named this difficulty, therefore in the name of Jesus be gone. No, it, the key is acceptance. And yet what I want us to see here is acceptance is not the goal. Living is the goal. Like life is actually the goal of acceptance. It's, it's living with, not against the grain of difficulty. Because we often have little to no ability to change the circumstances in us or around us. But we can relate to those circumstances in a way that leads to life rather than diminishing, halting, or fragmenting life. We don't have to be consumed by that difficulty. And I think that John is here today in our gospel text to kind of rattle our assumptions about the oughts of life, that life ought to be comfortable. He's here to rattle those assumptions. And John the Baptist is gonna go so far as to invite us to embrace or 
to accept the difficulty as a pathway to truth and to joy itself. And so really all we're doing is we're just going to work our way through the text bit by bit to see what the Spirit might want to draw out in us. And so if you're here for the first time or you're online joining in, uh, welcome to church. Uh, welcome to the Gospel according to John. Uh, and if, if you're really, if you're new-ish to the teachings of Jesus, uh, or the Gospels more broadly, or it's just been a long time since you've been hanging out in John, uh, I would do well to make this disclaimer about the Gospel according to John. John has an agenda. He's going to say at the very end of the Gospel that he wants us to like see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So John straight up has an agenda. And you might be tempted to distrust John because he has an agenda, but let me just encourage you, he's letting you know. He's laying it all out there. John has an agenda. I don't think it's like, Nefarious. I think it's quite sincere. John wants us to consider and respond to Jesus on Jesus' terms, which means that we might have to suspend judgment for a moment. We might have to press pause on how we think Jesus ought to be in order to actually hear from Jesus himself. And to help us to that end, John is going to weave together stack on top. He's going to connect these broad themes and stories about light and dark and night and day and wind and water, seeing and hearing, like all of these things that are centered around Jesus so that we, we might consider and then respond to Jesus amid the difficulty of life. For example, if you were here this past week, uh, or if you're well-versed in the Gospel according to John, at the beginning of John 3, we encountered this conversation with this guy named Nick, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is this esteemed religious elite. Jesus will go so far as to call him the, that's the direct article, the teacher of Israel. And this man, who is the teacher of Israel, he comes to Jesus by night. John's playing with this theme of light and darkness. So Nicodemus comes at night and it's there that he begins to wrestle with Jesus' call for new birth from above. A, a new birth that's generated independent from religious devotion. And when Nicodemus <laughs> is presented with these difficult words, the last thing that we hear from him in the scene is, how can that be? Like, how can that be? And then he just disappears from the scene. So here's this man who comes in darkness, is marked by religious duty, and there's confusion. Nicodemus comes, and then in contrast to the darkened religious overtones of that scene, we meet Jesus. We meet Jesus back where it all started, up in the north in a region called the Galilee. And it's there that Jesus' crew is baptizing. And I love how John puts it, because there's water there. Why not? Yeah, a little water, let's do this. But he's baptizing like John the Baptist. And there, an, another sort of wrestling takes place. Only this time, it's between John and his disciples. That's John the Baptist and his disciples. And we pick up in verse 25. You can flip or tap your way or just pay attention behind me. John 3, 25 reads like this. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. Now, the, the language there is around like uh, a, a Judean, likely someone who's from Jerusalem in the region of Judea who's come up to dis, like make some sort of dispute. And around what? Oh, over the matter of ceremonial washing. Verse 26, so as John's disciples come to John, they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, you know the one that you testified about? Yeah, that guy? 
Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. You might recall from earlier in the gospel according to John that John the Baptist is leading this renewal movement and he's doing so apart from any formal religious institution of the day. So there's no hype, there's no marketing wing, there's no like denominational entity named the Baptists. That, that hasn't happened yet. Like John's not backed by a crew like that. It, it is instead the simple call to turn to the kingdom of God, to enter into this renewal movement apart from all of the institutions. But unlike other fringe movements, John's actually has some momentum and so it begins to garner critique from the institutions that his actions are grading against, thus the disagreement. And, and this is really curious, just a little nerdy moment. Scholars really waffle on what the disagreement is about. They're not sure, is this a matter, as, as the text says, like around purification? Like, is this about the temple? Because if there's authority to baptize, it ought to come from the temple. Is that the disagreement? Or is this about Gentile inclusion? Because back in the day, baptism was really this entrance into the covenant community. You had that and circumcision. So it's like, okay, all of these washings, what, what is it? Well, we don't really know. And to be honest, the thing is seldom the thing. That is the presenting or the inciting incident is seldom the thing. And I think, I think we actually know this. Uh, early in my marriage, a lot of disputes arose around dish towels, their placement, their purpose, their proper cleansing. But the dish towel was never really the thing. Really what it was, it was me like moralizing my preferences and then assuming that Jess, she should know how I want them, where I want them, when I want them, and, and to some extent to know the thoughts I was thinking before I had even presented them verbally. She ought to know, like that was the thing. To say it concisely was about control. The dish towel was the inciting incident, but it was never the thing. And I think similarly here, the dispute is the proverbial dish towel. Like the real issue comes to the surface in verse 26. Just listen to the true concern. Rabbi, that man who was with you, the one, on the, the, the one that you vouched about, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing, even though John's gonna say that Jesus was in fact not baptizing, it was his disciples, but that's whatever. He, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. It's like hyperbole. The world is falling apart, come on. I, I tried to translate this into modern terms, so it goes a little, this is a little clunky, but just stay with me. Boss, if Jesus doesn't get in line, you know the guy you vouched for, then our movement, insert influence, status, regard, honor, significance, all of that will be undone. But John, in the very next verse, in verse 27, he meets those words with these words, and it has a different tonal quality. L listen to this. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And when I first read this, I, I thought that's such a typical response. Like that's that religious resignation right there. This is the, the way that modern church folk can dress up their pain and bypass disappointment with Bible verses talking about God working all things together for good, but really they just don't want to face the stuff. That's like, and, and I don't want to diminish that because indeed God does supernaturally and mystically work in and through circumstances. I don't understand that. But what I've come to see is that that type of religious resignation, that's the wrong way of reading this. Like I was reading it wrong. 
far from resignation, John's words, they bear witness to wisdom. It's a man who is cooperating with God. Someone who's accepting the difficulty, who's embracing the loss. And to see what I mean, let's just uh, double back with the, to the disciples' initial complaint. In essence, the disciples are saying, Rabbi, like, this shouldn't be the case. Because at the beginning of John's gospel, we see that Jesus is counted among those with John the Baptist. Now, there's some teachers, a teacher who goes by the name of Ray Vanderlaan, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. Um, Ray thinks that Jesus was John's disciple. In other words, Ray thinks that um, John was Jesus' rabbi which complicates matters for sure, but it also makes sense of some of the relational tension, especially among John's disciples, because now Jesus, the former student, has surpassed the teacher. But whatever the relationship between Jesus and John may be, it's clear that something like a a sort of sadness is bubbling up in the disciples. In John's disciples, there's this bitterness even, this jealousy, maybe even like disappointment and anger that are, it's coming to the surface. Essentially, they are bearing witness. They're bearing witness to this internal experience of loss. And that little turn of phrase, bearing witness to an internal experience of loss, that's what the grief expert David Kessler just calls grief. Getting what's on the inside out. And grief is not just this like, part by part thing that you work through that you know this gal kubler rashi like uh, designs a thing it's not a stage it's like a bird's nest it's messy and and gross and I, that seems to be what's taking place and and i want us to just linger here because i think that john's disciples have a, a gift to give us namely a window into our own grief so this, uh, that word grief is like a junk drawer for the past three years, uh, depending on whatever community you are a part of or where you are. Or, um, and so I'm not trying to like chalk that word full of all those past experiences. You know what they are. But for us to linger here is, is in some sense to face those things. And then when we bring the scriptures to it, it gets even more complicated because it's easy to come to the Bible in passages like this and consider them part of the, like, the collection of moral stories that inspire greater devotion to Jesus. After all, isn't that what the scriptures are supposed to be? And, and that is a part of it. The scriptures are moral stories. They have implications on good and bad, right and wrong. And they are meant to move us in our devotion to Jesus. But that's not all they are. The scriptures are this complex collection of stories with, within the lives of people, like real people who are trying to live their lives before and with the creator God. People like John's disciples, see the scriptures bear witness to humanity's existence before God, the beautiful and the broken bits. See, the scriptures are far more beautiful and complex than we often give them credit, but if we reduce them down to moral bits meant to lead me to devotion, we won't see the grief that's embedded in this. Just consider where we met these men. Uh, We meet them in a massive transition. All the momentum, all the fanfare, all of their significance is under threat because there's something about Jesus that's drawing the people away from their movement to himself. 
And where once it was John's call to come and repent that drew the people, now it's Jesus' call to turn to the kingdom, to be born from above. That's what's garnering momentum. And what did they do? Well, they discharged their pain as complaint. I so relate to this. I, I, I think I have like a master's in complaining. I am just so adept at getting that pain out in that manner. But this is what they do. So I don't want to moralize it. They just complain. And I think that's the inflection point for us. Like consider your last transition. Maybe you're in one right now. It could be relationally, it could be vocationally, it could very well be your physical location. You moved from one spot to another, you added to your family, you subtracted to your, from your family. Like whatever that transition, just consider it for a moment. What, what did you do with the frustration? What did you do with the pain? What did you do with like that felt sense of loss? If we're honest, um, we don't like pain, like we don't want the difficulty. Anytime I've walked through a season of intense confusion and uh, I, I generally just don't want it, I, I will literally say, I recognize this is happening and I don't want this to be happening. <laughs> Instead, what I want to do is I wanna skate over the surface of my pain, I wanna reframe it as insignificant. I'm really good at reframing stuff. Like if you have some, this is why I can say bring your hard stuff because somehow I'm like, uh, the silver linings, they just keep coming. And I'm not saying that's a healthy coping strategy for me, but for you, it can be a gift. So let's just take my emotional unhealth and allow it to be released for your healing. Yes and amen. But, but it, I actually don't want to just skate over the surface of that. But in the midst of it, I often bypass rather than embrace the difficulty. And my guess is that many of you, that you do a similar type of thing. And this is why we're lingering here. Like, what if, just go, go here with me. What if following Jesus was about more than some sort of eternal security in the heavens? What about, what if following Jesus was about the power of heaven breaking into this present moment to release healing to those who are broken? What if that's what life with Jesus was about? And then you got to tell your story of God's healing through a community of faith as a gift to your neighbor. You didn't have to like sway them or have some sort of agenda. You could just display the love of God in Christ through community, invite them into that like, Oh, that feels like something like refreshment. See, there's a different way to attend to the difficulty than discharging our pain and complaint. And sometimes it does, it just feels good. And I don't know, maybe there needs to be somebody with whom you, like maybe it's a professional, like a therapist, or maybe it's just a, a friend. You just need to be able to vent. But that cannot be the end. Like we have to have a better way to discharge our pain than complaint period. And this is where John the Baptist comes in. Because somehow John the Baptist can meet the same moment of loss and disappointment and yet not be given over to complaint. How, can, how does he do it? Well, this is, this is, I think, part of it. There's the author uh, of Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, who, the, the Holocaust survivor. survivor. And he, he said this. This is a great little one-liner. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. It's like there's a deep rootedness in John the Baptist. Just listen to his why, picking up in verse 27. Griffin just said I'm taking really long. Sorry, buddy. Oh. It's only 19 minutes, son. 
A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who tends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and it is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The jo that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. I've heard so many sermons on verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. And it, they all kind of boil down to like some sort of self-deprecating mantra. I just don't actually think that that's what's going on. Because in modern terms, John just described himself as the best man at a wedding. And that's about as far as we can take that little metaphor because our vision of what a best man is falls apart. Like there's a bachelor party and maybe some like a ring responsibility. I don't know. I've never been a best man. But in, in Jesus' day, weddings would last days, if not weeks. And the best man had a kind of a curious role in the wedding because on the first night of the wedding, there would be a reserved space for the bride and groom to set their seal on the wedding, if you will. And the one who attends the bridegroom, as John says, waits and listens for him. In other words, as the party got going, the bride and groom would slip away to that reserved space to set the seal on their covenant. And when the groom gave word, I'm, just, I'm hoping you're filling in the gaps here. When the groom gave word, the best man would say, I'm, I'm thinking like, huzzah! That, <laughs> That's not in the text, it's just, it's just this is the, the contextual matter. The best man would announce that indeed the marriage is sealed. I don't think that if you're like planning a wedding, um, that I don't think this should be a part of your ceremony, just, I don't think it would go over well. Um, this is John. He's the one who is announcing, he's the one who's proclaiming, it has happened, it has taken place, and then the party would pop off. That's when it would really get going. See, John's why is that he's not the savior. He, he's not, he, there's not a fragility in his soul around who he is. He knows that that's not him. He's even said it. So he's not constrained by this moment. He is released by it. See, if you're living, if your life is contingent on your performance, whether it is your religious performance, your professional performance, your interpersonal performance, whatever it might be, if your life is contingent on your performance, difficulty will consume you because it will make up your identity. John's disciples, they're consumed by the moment. They interpret Jesus' growth as a loss, and they tempt John to competition and to comparison. You hear it in their voice. The man you vouched for, the one that you testified about, that guy. But to what end do they tempt him to com competition and comparison? Like, is John supposed to just tell Jesus off, like schoolyard scuffle, get in his face? Or in modern terms, is Jesus supposed to write like a, or John is gonna write like a scathing review? of Jesus's ministry. He's gonna like throw shade on Reddit. I, like what is Jesus to do here? What is John to do here? See, rather than embrace the difficulty and see the possibility for joy, John's disciples, they aim themselves at despair. And here's how I'm getting to despair because the, the data is pretty clear that comparison is itself a thief of joy. 
My guess is you've heard that line time and time again, comparison is a thief of joy. See, comparison centers your story and it distances you from others. It crowds out celebration. It ultimately suffocates joy. And joy is a relational reality. Joy is a relational response to the living God. There's a, a neurotheologian who talks a lot about joy. His name's Jim Wilder. And this is how he talks about joy. Listen to this. Because John has said, my joy is complete. Jim Wilder. Many definitions of joy are static descriptions of a state, similar to what we might say for a flavor like salty. From the human brain perspective, joy is more of a dynamic relational experience. Joy is a glad to be together state, amplified between two minds that are glad to be together at that moment. Joy is relational. The signature of joy is that we are sharing the moment with someone who is glad that we are there. In short, joy is a relational experience of gladness. This is why I will um, periodically have us do the really awkward thing of looking at another person left eye to left eye because in your uh, neurochemistry, like in your brain, that's where those things are connecting. It actually says, I see you. Like, and I want to be with you. And then you don't just fake joy, like you're interpreting the nonverbals. Like you, you think of like, you think of a moment that you're glad and then you project that into that relational space and joy lights up. It's like the relational circuits in your brain turn on because joy is a relational experience of gladness. This is what John is experiencing with Jesus. But competition and comparison, they undercut joy because they objectify and they dismantle relationships. See, competition and comparison can feel like a type of safety, but it is a self-protection. It's actually the opposite of something that will bring the life we want because it holds others off at bay. In the end, we're left with something like despair. It, just look to social media. It is drowning kids in social comparison that they can never win. And it's not just youth, it's us. And that is the seedbed for despair. There's the, the Christian mystic Thomas Merton who has this definition of despair that is haunting. And so I wanted to share it with you. Despair is the absolute extreme of self-love. It is reached when a person deliberately turns his or her back on all help from anyone else in order to taste, and listen to this line, church, the rotten luxury of knowing himself to be lost. John refuses despair. And I think it is a refusal. And then he challenges his disciples, and then by extension, you and me, to receive the difficulty of the pain, the diagnosis, the breakup, the loss, as a place to turn toward, not away from Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we're okay with whatever the thing is that elicits the disappointment. We don't have to be okay with it. We can name it that it sucks, that it is whatever. Maybe we discharge that complaint, but we then move through that and we say, and this is reality, so what am I to do? John invites us to receive that as a place of healing so that it might actually be a teacher. We could learn from it in the company of Jesus. Just listen as John goes on as we make our way to closing here. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. 
And I love how Eugene Peterson kind of paraphrases the next few verses. So just listen to this. This is from the message. This is picking up in verse 34. The one that God sent speaks God's words. And don't think he rations out the spirit in bits and pieces. No, the father loves the son extravagantly and he turned everything over to him so he could give it away, a lavish distribution of gifts. That is why whoever accepts and trusts the son gets in on everything. Life complete and forever. And that is also why the person who avoids and distrusts the sun is in the dark and doesn't see life. All he experiences of God is darkness and an angry darkness at that. See, what's on the line for John is the difference between life and death, light and darkness. And it's not just that it's for him. He's pointing at the reality of the kingdom of God breaking in and he's saying that Jesus is the one who has consummated that. He's brought it together. And it seems as though difficulty is a part of it. And embracing difficulty invites us to reckon with reality, that sin tax, to reckon with reality, or as John claims it in verse 33, to kind of put our stamp of approval on the truth. Who is Jesus? So when we turn to Jesus, we actually get the relational experience of gladness in the midst of frustration. Uh, Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to point his whole life at the cross. In Mark, he'll say, uh, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. In other words, deny yourself. If, if, you want to, if you seek to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give your life away, you'll actually gain it. In other words, there is a type of inversion of how we see life, that difficulty can be transformed into something like delight. Embracing difficulty invites us to reckon with reality, to, to like reckon with truth. And just here, this is, uh, this is like an OG sermon from uh, John Chrysostom, and he has this to say about truth. I don't know who said it better. He, he was called Golden Tongue. This is your boy, Golden Tongue. Nothing can be clearer or mightier than the truth, just as nothing is weaker than the falsehood. Though it be shaded by 10,000 veils, for even so it is easily detected, it easily melts away. But the truth stands forth unveiled for all that will behold her beauty. She seeks no concealment, dreads no danger, trembles at no plots, desires no glory for the many, is accountable to no mortal thing, but stands above them all, is the object of 10,000 secret plots, yet remaineth unconquerable, and guards as a sure fortress those who fly to her by her own exceeding might who avoids secret lurking places and setteth what is hers before all men. I love that line. A sure fortress for those who fly to her by her own exceeding might. See, whatever John's disciples think that John's movement can give them, Jesus can give them more. Whatever John's disciples think that can be garnered through the notoriety, Jesus can give them more, but it comes through a type of death because John's not in competition with Jesus. John celebrates Jesus. He enjoys Jesus. He actually is there to reckon with an encounter with Jesus and to see that what might be experienced as loss is in fact the gaining of much more because everything has been given into his hands. 
The philosopher James K. Smith has this to say on the matter. To submit oneself to the encounter with Jesus is not to arrive at some ironclad certainty that solves all your problems. You don't have to set aside your questions. You only have to stop letting those questions be a defense, an excuse to not take a leap, because sometimes we want answers to those questions precisely to avoid encountering the Jesus who would rock our world. We cannot divorce our life from difficulty. If this season or the past has not been difficult, um, it will be in the future. You cannot avoid it. You can't like scroll yourself into celebration. You can't like drink and eat into celebration. You simply cannot manufacture it by yourself. There might be glimpses of it, but they will fade. We cannot divorce life from difficulty. There is a sin tax, but God in Christ, like, this is the gospel, God in Christ broke into our brokenness to bear the burden of our pain with us, to suffer on our behalf, to make a way through death so that we in the experience and pangs of death might have the knowledge that death doesn't have the final word. So we don't just come to church to get hyped for Jesus. I, I would be a very poor hype man for Jesus, I think. We come here because there is a relational reality that we get to enter into through the difficulty. We get, to, as we disclose it, and this, by the way, is like not the proper setting for that type of stuff, but there are groups. Like, why do we do groups? Because programs will generate more people and people give money. I, no, like we have those groups so that you can have a space of relational trust where you can disclose some of that pain and then people can walk with you through it. God in Christ broke into our brokenness to bear our pain, to suffer with us. And when the world tempts us to despair, we can declare with John that we are not the Savior. Like We don't actually have to bear up our own burdens. We don't have to hold it together, whatever it might be. Instead, we're invited to release ourselves into the care of Jesus. Would you be so bold as to do that? Would you be willing to step into that awkward and fearful space? Only you can actually provide that answer. And what's so curious to me about this is that what John says is his joy is complete. Somehow that momentary loss is the space where joy is released. Did you ever think that your pain could be a place of worship? Do you, do you know that no one else can give God the worship you have to give? There's, there is no one else with your story, with your transitions, with your family of origin. There's no one else living in your life. No one can bring your worship before the Father. Only you can bring your worship to God. There's no one else who can do it. And God wants to release healing through your pain and that, that you give testimony to that through your worship. And so I just wanna invite you, church, to turn toward that because God has turned toward us in Christ. We turn to remember this week in and week out in the bread and the cup.